My extra special guest this week is Robin Jaffray, and he is the founding partner at R&D Associates. This is a masterclass in delivering value for clients, brand strategy, and the future of the holding companies. R&D was co-founded by Tim Doust behind FCB Inferno, if you're wondering, and they have a holding company model without holding anyone to anything. He actually describes them more like an algorithm than a network agency. We talk about that. We talk about their growth planning and business development services, their strategic leadership consulting as well. Robin has built the most stellar career, starting at Leo Burnett in the 90s, then goes on to McCann. He becomes global strategy director for their Microsoft business, managing the Xbox and Windows products for them. Uh, he also talks about his seven and a half years with Inferno being part of their story, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, he's built a CV and a career, which is really impressive. And I just learned a ton from speaking with him. I know that you will as well listening to this. If you're interested in alternative models to the traditional holding companies, what clients want from their agencies today, and how agencies can become indispensable sources of advantage for their clients, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Robin Jaffray. Robin Jaffray is the founding partner at R&D, a strategic business consultancy to help creative businesses and brands develop and flourish. They offer growth planning and business development services, strategic leadership consulting, as well as a range of off-the-shelf solutions to in-housing, global insights, IP development, and networking. They also have created a holding company proposition without the holding company, really. We'll talk about that in more detail. Connecting the agencies through unique methodologies to provide brands with bespoke, expert and solution neutral resources. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Robin Jaffray, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you very much, Nathan. Nice to be here. So you set up R&D with Tim Douse, the founder of FCB. Uh, he was a previous guest on the show as well. Yeah. And you say that in the early days, you wanted to be a professional sportsman like him. <laughs> I think your sport was windsurfing. What made you switch courses and become a creative? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I grew up on the South Coast. So um, sailing and windsurfing was a kind of natural sort of gravity for me. But when you try to make a living at something, you learn very quickly if if you're going to cut the cut the mustard. And I think um, when on on my day, I was quite reasonable at windsurfing, but I think you sort of realise quite quickly just how good the the top people are. And um, I thought I better get a proper job. Hmm. And um, you know, I thought I could write a little bit at the time. I think it was a bit little bit of a golden age of advertising. And I thought, right, I'll uh, you know, advertising is the is is the route for me. And um, I sort of avidly read campaign a lot. And the agency that seemed to get a lot of press coverage at the time was called Still Price Court Twivy de Souza, which I, th I think someone just rolls some, off the tongue. Just rolls off the tongue. So someone unkindly said it sounded like a Romanian estate agent, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know um, quite what that means. But um, they, they, they certainly were, you know, part of that sort of third wave of agency like, um, uh, you know Hal Henry and 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 that group of sort of independent planning-led agencies, and um, I, I phoned them up and said, "Look, can I come and talk to you for your advice about how to get into the industry?" And um, 
long long story short, you know, I just made a nuisance of myself and sort of camped out in their reception most evenings until until they did see me. It gave me sort of five, five minutes of their, of their day, and eventually they they gave me a job as well. So that pers- perseverance pays, but uh, it was it was very lovely of them to do that. You were at the legendary Leo Burnett for about 10 years because you say that you wanted to get that sort of industry rigor and the craft skills. You started out in account management and then you uh, and then they kept suggesting that you should maybe do planning and strategy. What were your biggest takeaways from that experience that informed the rest of your career? Yeah, look, I mean, Leo Burnett was a, a fantastic opportunity to work on much bigger pieces of business, more complex pieces of business, global as well. And I spent a lot of time traveling you know to, to work on the work on the brands i was working on Leobinet was a sort of i don't know if it still is obviously this was a while ago but was was an agency full of sort of homilies and idiom largely from Leobinet himself we used to be given a book of you know 101 sayings by by Leobinet and that sort of culture you know his his founder culture pervaded the whole the whole agency mm. the the first thing that i sort of took with me i think was the sort of agency proposition, which was to be an indispensable source of advantage for your clients. And I think that's really sort of held true for me all the way through my career. And I'm sort of struck by, you know, there there are people in the industry who are kind of self-interested in the work that they do and wanting to get that out into the world, but they forget that it's it's in service of of that client's business and you know we're, we're here as a sort of you know as a as an industry to um to be an indispensable source of advantage so i thought that was that was a strong learning and i, and I suppose that whole sort of you know leobinettism you know it was a uh a quite a paternalistic culture and a founder-led culture even long after his death and i think that the importance of how you set a tone as a leader of of an agency to the rest of the agency is important and just make sure that the culture of the agency is sort of founded on the right principles. So you talk about an indispensable source of advantage and I I agree with you that that was what the traditional client agency relationship was like. Has that been eroded a little bit in recent years? I mean, we've seen a lot more sort of scandals now, uh, I guess, with lack of transparency as to kind of agency fees and kickbacks and we that was in the in the news a, f- a few years ago and um not sure whether that's you know that's still around but we also know that there's a little bit of there are stories of ad fraud and sort of there's just a lack of transparency across well what what the brand is spending and what you know whether or not they're actually paying for eyeballs that sort of don't exist so while i agree that yes agencies were an indispensable source of advantage some time ago is that still the case today well I would say happily that I haven't really been very close to the world of ad fraud personally, so I couldn't really comment too too much on on that. I think that um, who's who said that advertising is merely art with strategy, and I think that you know there there are people who are in the industry for various motives, um, you know. A lot of the time for sort of creative self-expression that's fine there's a place for that but i do think that um we you know are competing with a, a much broader range of business services for our clients dollars right and from management consultancies to private equity shops etc and 
as such, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we are there to uh, support, but also there to advise and lead and guide them and and really sort of, you know, be, be seen as being a sort of critical component to how they, you know, how they develop and grow themselves. Hmm. You you became the planning director for McCann in, in 2002, where you led the strategic planning of the UK, EMEA and global B2B and B2C brands like Microsoft, Xbox, Bungie, Halo titles and MSN. Yeah. What does the planning director for McCann do and what makes a world-class planning director? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm not sure. I'm the, I'm the I'm qualified to answer that sort of question, but I'll try. Look, I I I think you know the the world of Microsoft at McCann at the time was almost like a a world unto itself, right? It was a huge piece of business. It was one of the the biggest advertisers in the world at the time that I was working on it. And I think that it's the sort of account whether whether it's the Xbox side or or the enterprise service side of the business. It's the sort of account that demands that you really get under the skin of the business, that you know it and are as enthusiastic about it as the people who work for them. So, yes, we have an agenda to sort of do the best possible work and get that work out into the world. But they also need you to sort of understand their business and and what it's like. Someone once said to me, you know, starting out in planning, actually, an, an old colleague, John Cohen, said that, you know, Good planner is everyone's friend. You know, you're a friend of the creatives and you're a friend of the client. Mm. I think that that's that's good advice and good practice. Um, whether you're starting out or or you know le- leading a team, I think for for an account like Microsoft, what it means is um, understanding their business and bringing real clarity to it. You know, they they have more information than you can possibly imagine about their categories so it's really about navigating that and 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 simplifying it was a it was an interesting experience because it showed me um, how little often agency strategists penetrate client organizations so we had a number of practices that sort of held us in good stead i think like um you know we we would spend time at the client's offices, we had a, a an agency space there, both in um, Seattle and and in the UK. Uh, so we, you know, we could hang out with them. We could join their meetings. We could have coffee with them. We really kind of got under the skin of the business. We had access to their research and 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 their, you know, uh, we were on their email systems even as virtual employees, and it just meant that we had a perspective and knowledge that really enabled us to. To, to navigate their problems and, and give them better solutions. Hmm. Last, last question on this before we talk in more detail about R&D, because I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm really fascinated about yeah. the business. Yeah. What was it like being part of the FCB story? I mean, you became chief strategy officer for Inferno, which then became yeah, yeah, FCB, yeah, and yeah. they just won a million different awards, Can Lions, <laughs> ARR, and AAR, go down the list. Um, really well regarded agency, a lot of success. Yeah. What was it like being part of that story? Oh well, it was great fun. I mean, you know, how could it not be? I think um, if if Fenno was pretty small when I joined, I mean, it was only about um, maybe forty, forty-five people. I was the first planner, 
you know, so as a, as a kind of strategy department of one, so that's always daunting to be, be, be in that position. Um, I mean, you know, before we were bought, I think we had a planning team of uh, 16. And after the merger, it was about 25. So it, it was a very significant um, department. I mean, I think it was, it was, it was a real journey. I, I mean, we went through a number of key milestones in terms of getting fit to compete at, at the highest level and really be the type of agency that we wanted to be. You know, we went through a number of milestones in terms of the types of briefs that we're able to answer. You know, I can I can remember distinctly, you know, just a, a tremendous campaign that we did for NSPCC that, you know, got a lot of attention for us, but also was grounded on a, a brilliant insight. That in turn positioned us to win brands like um, Nokia. You know, we, we were competing against some of the best agencies in town, like Wyden Kennedy and Fallon back in the day. And and that sort of, you know, meant that we had to be on our game all the time. And I think, you know, it's just a series of these steps that you go through to become an agency like we were eventually. It took, it you know, it took seven years to get in position to do that from the point of view of strategy team. You know, I mean, it was a, a series of, well, I think it was a combination of the willingness of the founders of Inferno to invest in strategy. Um, so we were we always felt like we were one person on the team ahead of where we should be in terms of revenues, if that makes sense. So there was always an investment in the team and the skills that we had available to ourselves. And that paid back. I mean, the, the strategy department had the highest ROI at one point of any department in the agency. So I think we were obviously doing something right. I mean, I think we were able to develop a number of ways of working. We had an idea called the bench, which so sounded like you were going to be the last kid picked for the football team. Um, but, but actually, the, the you know, I think one of, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that um, pe people expect the strategists to have the answers. And most of the time, you're making it up. I have to say, <laughs> certainly speaking from personal experience, anyway, I'm not sure about my colleagues who are obviously better than I am, but um, you know, you, you can't be you can't be an expert in digital and retail and behavior science sure. and and all, the, you know, and data and all the rest of it. Right. Sure. But you're kind of expected to be. So one of the, the idea of the bench was that we would hire T-shaped people. So people that had those discipline skills, but could also, you know, work as a as a lead creative strategist on their brands. And it meant that we would say to a client, look, you know, we're going to bring in somebody from the bench to work on this brief with me because I need those skills that I, I don't necessarily have. So the client saw a lot more value add through, the, through that application of strategy. I said it was going to be the last question, but last, last question. <laughs> talk, about, talk about what the culture was at the time within Inferno. Like mm. what sort of culture was needed or was necessary in order to build the success that you, that you ultimately had? Um, so I think there's two ways I could answer the question. I mean, the, the first is to look at a sort of, you know, is it a star culture or was it an engineering culture, for instance, or a commitment culture? I think it was more of a commitment culture. Um, we, we weren't, for, for a long, long time, we weren't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, a, a particularly sort of famous or sexy agency for people to join. You know, we could, we, 
we were lucky to get people like Al Young in as, as creative director and he became a bit of a magnet for, for creative talent for us, which was great. But what I mean by sort of commitment culture is that I think people felt that they were signing up to something. It, it really felt quite cavaliering. Um, you know, we were independent, we were ambitious, hungry, worked hard, you know, it, I wouldn't say we were a kind of a sweatshop, but it was, you know, it was a hardworking place, but there was a sense of momentum and direction to it. So I think the culture was one that people felt that they signed up to, but also the formal definition of the sort of culture that we had in the agency was to do the right thing. And I think there was, you know, it's, it's funny, it almost goes back to that Leah Burnett sort of Midwestern paternalism, doesn't it? But do, doing the right thing was just making sure that, you know, we did well by people that worked there, um, you know, that we, we recognised success and re rewarded it, um, that, you know, we, we balanced, you know, working hard with, with, with playing hard as well. You know, I think it was uh, about trying to make the right decisions for, for people as well as for, for the agency itself. So let's talk a little bit about R&D. You and Tim uh, launched R&D in September 2020. Yeah. Uh, and you run as a network of independent agencies who come together to solve client problems. Mm. Tell us a little bit about why you set up the business in the first place with Tim and talk a little bit about the network itself, which I understand is run as an algorithm not a network. <laughs> yeah, Explain. yeah. Well, uh, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll come. I'll come to algorithm. But um, so Tim was obviously, you know, one one of the founders of Inferno. And when when he left, we found ourselves in in similar orbits sometimes, and you know, our paths crossed occasionally. And and Tim and I, I think, are very um, very different in terms of some of the skills that we have and capabilities that we have. Tim's focus is very much more on kind of new business and that kind of more relational and, and, and driving the business side of things. Um, mine is probably more, you know, strategic, creative and, and operational. And what we found is that there were occasional projects where we were much better going in as a banded pack than, than we were as individuals. Um, and I found that kind of all the way through my career, actually, is working closely with people and, and partners in business is always more rewarding for me than, tr than trying to do it on my own. So, you know, we were working together primarily with creative businesses, really just passing on some of the benefits of the experience that we had with, with Inferno um, over the years. And we, we got to a point where we thought, well, we, we work with a wide variety of businesses. They're all independent. They're all, you know, nominally best in class in their particular sectors. And why don't we sort of try and get them together? So we invited them for dinner and got everyone around a table, got them to introduce themselves, talk a little bit about kind of what made them successful and what some of the challenges ahead looked like. And we said, look, you know, if you want to um, want to work together, if you like each other, work together, you know, for, for mutual benefit. And um, that was, a year before really we formalized R&D. So cut a long story short, I think, you know, t t Tim and I are good at working together, working upstream with brands and businesses, you know, with founders and owners, with C-suite on, on sort of upstream challenges and strategies. Um, and then we had this availability of these um, creative businesses that we could tap into to help us deliver. And then that formalized into R&D. So, you know, we do have 
a, a double-headed proposition in in terms of doing that sort of upstream consultancy, but then also managing the network. And you, you described it earlier as a holding company without the holding company, because that network is not dependent on a transaction, i.e. We, we, we don't invest in the businesses that are part of that group, and they don't have to pay us a subscription. They're there because, you know, they've been invited to be there because they're good and because they can work with each other. And the idea of algorithm is that we've, that working with each other, we've sort of codified it. So we've looked at ways in which we can plug these different capabilities together, ways that they can work together on different types of projects that might be new to them. And we can then reapply that out to, to, to new briefs and new challenges that we get. So talk a little bit about who the agencies are that make up the network, because one of the one of the criticisms from the big holding companies is that the, the some of the parts aren't very good at working together. They often go into pitches against each other, competing against each other. <laughs> yeah. And I assume that's not the case with with you guys. Tell us a little bit about the agencies that make up the network and what differentiates you from the big holding groups. Yeah, I mean, that's, the agencies that we have in in the group at the moment, we've got a, uh, a, a an advertising brand creative agency called Impero that we work with very closely. Yeah, they've been on the show, Michael Scansbury. Oh, oh, very good. Great guy, he's, I love him. He is fantastic and, 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 and quite a character. I imagine he's he's good, good radio. Um, so we work with Impero. Um, we work with um, Total Media. Um, as a sort of one of the preeminent sort of media independents in in the UK, uh, Creative Culture, who are a trans creation agency, but they also give us a global footprint for uh, insight um, into local market and, and and other cultures around the world. So that gives us a sort of a a presence globally without having to have the bricks and mortar attached to that. Um, we have we work with an agency called Tonic, who are specialists in employer branding, um, and. Uh, uh, and recruitment uh, so that sort of inside out perspective of looking at a, a business culture uh, f- from the inside and work and connecting that to the brand on the outside is a fantastic capability um, organic who are a digital agency primarily focused on on technical side and build and service design mm. ben scoggins um, he's been on the show as well uh, very good um so we work with ben very closely and in fact you know we we launched a um uh, a, a super yachting business, uh, a, a brand called Yumira, and um, so t- Tim and I worked on on the uh, proposition design for for that, and Org- Organic helped us with the uh, with the technology, which is a good example of an algorithm kind of at at work. So I mean that's the, that's the core, and then there's a, a wider range of of agencies that we can tap into for other capabilities like. Um, the, there's an agency called, you know, called Chimney, who are, uh, you know, preeminent um, production house around the world. Um, Moon to Mars, who are based in Germany and the US, who are really in the business Great of live. Day. Yeah, is well. Funnily enough, their, their um, chairman is actually used to be the uh, director of NASA. Oh, so hence the okay. <laughs> they, sure, they talk about yeah, of course. So they talk about Mars shots, not moon shots. They 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 always stretch our thinking, which is fantastic. But mm. you know, they're they're in the business of you know uh, live streaming and esports, so they they really kind of help us connect into 
the world of big tech that mm. uh, that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Wow, fascinating uh, network there. The the thing is that it's it's a very loose affiliation, right? That's that's the thing that's different. So pe- people are not there because they pay to be there. They're there because they fit the model and they want to work with that model. But it also means that if a client comes to us and says, Ashley, you know, I, you haven't got a PR capability, we can go out and find somebody who can we can bring in, mm. you know, and as long as they fit certain criteria about independence and being being best in class, then uh, and, and they're willing to sort of fit fit the model, then um, then we can work with them. So it's a it's an infinitely adaptable model, I think. So you touched on something really interesting earlier this sort of landscape of the big holding groups and how that's shifting let's talk a little bit about that because you know wpp publicis omnicom wp um go down the list they have had almost a stranglehold hold on the advertising industry for the last 50 years that's slowly starting to shift now as we see the big consultancies coming into it we're seeing the big technology companies salesforce and adobe yeah private equity coming into it as well you're also seeing a lot of money going into Facebook and advertise, um, Facebook and Google because and Amazon uh, is also on 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 the scene as well. Yeah. So the landscape is really changing significantly. As added into that, you're seeing a, a lot of newer, more nimble startups like yourselves who are muscling in on on their territory. Give us an idea of kind of what the landscape looks like now. And if you were to have a crystal ball over the next five or ten years, what would it look like? Um, well, it'd be lovely to know what that, what that, what that would look like. Yeah, it? just tell me. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keep it between me and you. Yeah, right. Like, uh, let's do that. Um, look, I, th- I think somebody, in fact, one of the intermediaries said to me um, not that long ago that the, the sort of composition of uh, pitch lists has sort of changed quite a lot in the in the last year or two, and whereas it used to be. So, you know, you might have three of the networks and one sort of challenger ag- wildcard um, agency in the mix. It sort of flipped. And increasingly, you know, they said you're likely to have sort of three challengers or wildcards in the mix now and then one more traditional network. Um, so I thought that that's an interesting, interesting model. I, th- I think it's an opportunity, um, obviously, as being a, an independent proposition. But it's also a challenge because... We're up against many more, you know, new models of uh, of of agencies um, combining and working together. I mean, you know, ex- extrapolating. I, th- I think you've sort of answered the question yourself. I mean, for me, you know, I think um, we're hearing from brands, you know, a, a desire to make sense of of big tech. So trends like, you know, e- esports and 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 live streaming and new ways of creating engagement with uh with customers you know is going to be a sort of big focus um you know maybe a, you know brands are looking to agencies to provide solutions that might not be within the purview of one particular agency so i think you know that ability to to bring in those skills and those perspectives outside of your own i think will continue sure there you know the you know the, the the networks are getting you know bigger and better. They're leaning into technology and so on. But also, I think you know from from our perspective, it's about being a little bit loose and a little bit agile and 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 staying sort of fresh and relevant as a as a proposition and and fit for whatever comes next. 
What have you learned about what it takes to make great creative campaigns that really move the dial for your clients? Uh, messaging, um, targeting, reach, channels. What have you What have you learned about what it takes to really make an impact for for a client? Look, I think there are there are two things that I sort of fall back on a lot. In, I mean, anyone that's worked with me will know that I sort of I, I regurgitate the same the same charts over and over again. Um, but I think I, I fall back on two two key concepts for for work and, and what makes work good. I mean, it's first of all, it's got to be interesting, right? It's just got to be good, interesting, fresh, feel feel new and different. I mean, you know. At Inferno, we had a, you know, our positioning for a long time was um, the world needs more interesting. And we kind of believed that, you know, it's we're competing for people's attention in so many new and different ways that are constantly changing. But at the heart of that, how you make a brand interesting is fundamental. Right. And that anything that a strategist can do to fuel the creative process to make stuff interesting, I think, is is fundamental to the job. The the second is more of a kind of strategic answer, which I think is around relevance. You know, I, I can't claim to own the IP on on relevance, but I think you know I've I've tried in my career to try and stay relevant by pointing, you know, strategy at, at different types of opportunities and challenges. And I think brands need to understand, you know, if it, whatever their ambition or, or intention is. For, for development or, or growth, you know, they need to be relevant to people's repertoires, to people's lifestyles. You know, th- what what makes things relevant has changed massively through the impact of technology and things like that. So really understanding those drivers of relevance and how you can pull those levers, um, I, th- I think, is a sort of critical sort of starting point for developing effective strategy. I was listening to a talk from the CEO of um, AB InBev the other day, and he says something really interesting in terms of relevance. He said, there are certain brands, it's important to have a portfolio of brands because there are certain brands that go in and out of fashion. So brands that may have been fashionable 20 or 30 years ago, for one reason or another, suddenly come back into the popular mainstream and they're, and they're popular again. So that's why you should never really kill off a brand, even if a brand is sort of no longer as popular as it, as it once was there are ways that consumers for some reason or another pull uh, you know an, an old brand back into the mainstream um and there have been a number of examples of, of that i thought that was really really fascinating do you go along with that and kind of can you talk a little bit more about what you mean about brand relevance because i think that relates to sort of what he was saying um yeah i you know it i, I think brands can sort of try and um try and stimulate that for themselves but also it can be driven by uh by cultural factors i mean you know many years ago when i was at leah Burnett, for instance i mean one one brand that we managed was um fruit of the loom you know which which is a at worst is a sort of you know lowest cost on sale in a in, in a market kind of t-shirt but it just occasionally seems to have these cycles where it gets adopted by different subcultures like the surf surfing community and then suddenly it becomes the brand that everyone's got to got to have you know and as a brand owner you have to sort of jump on that momentum um but be able to kind of recognize the signals early enough to be able to sort of capitalize on it yourself so i think there there are definitely those sort of um 
you know, b b being able to track cultural signals and and uh, around a brand or around a category, I think, uh, is is what the, those brand owners should be doing and agencies helping them. I mean, in in terms of drivers of relevance, um, one one good source to that that I've I've come across. Um, in, in the last few years is the work that um, David Acker has been doing in the US and he's got a consultancy that looks at, um, has basically sort of codified certain drivers within certain categories. And they look at, they're looking for correlations with purchase, not, not with intention or not with express preference, but actual um, purchase behavior. And, you know, that that's a, that's a good sort of starting point for looking at you know, for a brand looking for, you know, what makes a brand successful in financial services or, you know, beverages or, you know, um, you know automotive, for instance. So, you know, are there the same factors and what do those factors look like or mean when you're developing campaigns? You know, so I think you can you can stimulate some of that um, that cultural relevance or you, or you can track it and respond to it. Mm. Robin, I can talk to you about this all day, but we're uh, fast <laughs> running out of time. Let's get into everyone's favourite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So <laughs> I'm excited to ask you one or two. You have no idea what's coming as well. Anymore, no, I don't. So no, I don't. That don't. makes yeah. it even more exciting. Oh, fantastic. Uh, <laughs> start with the nice, easy one. Yeah, go Tell on. us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, goodness. Um, that's, the, that's the ultimate interview question, isn't it? Um, I thought you were going to ask me what my favourite colour was. <laughs> That's the next question. Oh, okay, good. Um, a time that I failed, I'll, I'll try and make it a sort of useful answer rather than just just talk about um, me. But I th one of the things that we, one of the ways that we worked at Inferno that was was a real pleasure actually was um, kind of experimentation. Right. So we we would we would constantly look f for new ways of doing things that felt that we were um, doing something interesting with the agency or doing something interesting with the strategy team. And we, we a couple of examples of things that perhaps didn't work out too well. Um, we First of all, we felt that agencies at their best are often agencies when you're pitching. You know, you work fast, you have a self-forming team that sets its own agenda and timings and, and just gets on with it, right? So we thought what we could do is make that be a you know, business as usual rather than just just saving that way of working for pitches. And from a strategy point of view, that meant actually having the strategists form teams around them. So it was a very agile way of working, but with kind of with the strategist almost as the scrum master. Mm. Um, but what we did is we took away their desks. So we had, we, yeah, right. It's a failure, right? I mean, I'm not supposed to talk about a success here. Okay, right. uh, so what we did is uh, we had lots of breakout spaces and banquettes and stuff all around the agency. And we, we, we set the agency up like that to, to, for this way of working. So we expected the sort of planners to sort of go out and coalesce a team around them and, and build, almost like build a, build a project team that was, you know, responding to whatever the whatever we're working on at the time, but you know, I, th I think the the lesson for me was that you know you can only stretch people's behaviour so far. You know that that you know a, a strategy team is full of lots of characters anyway, and and some of them can be quite reluctant to to adopt such radical 
practices. We we even had one one strategist who camped out on the staircase in protest. <laughs> so he set up office oh between the between sort of uh, the, the lobby and the reception just to just to make the point. <laughs> so experiment by all means, but sort yeah. of don't 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 push it too far. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I love that one. Great answer. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to enjoy these then. Uh, Tell us about some of your early mentors. Who influenced the way that you think about media, advertising, agency world, creative? Early mentors. Yeah. I mean, to have mentors, it means you're sort of worthy of having mentors, and I'm not sure I kind of really. Oh, <laughs> no, look, I, th- I think there are. Th- there were behaviours in others, I think, maybe is the way I should answer the question. There were behaviours in others that I could really learn from or admire. Um, so I don't, maybe I'm being unfair, but I don't feel I was being sort of really mentored through any of the agencies I really worked for. Maybe it's not those sorts of cultures. But, um, you know, I can look at people like, um, going back to sort of Leah Burnett, for example, you know, there were, the CEO was a guy called Steve Gatfield. And... I always remember that whenever you went to a meeting with Steve Gatfield, he'd, he was always kind of one step ahead of the meeting. He'd always sort of prepared for it better than anybody else. Mm. And that's something I try and do for a lot of meetings is how do I, you know, how do you almost kind of surprise and delight people by being sort of one, one step ahead? You don't have to be sort of five steps ahead. One's kind of enough, but give it, give it the forethought that it deserves. Mm, I, like um, I, I worked a lot with um, Alan Setford, who was the... Um, uh, European um, strategy director there and I mean that was just a, a lovely time first of all just because he's a very decent human being but his his ability to just think with absolute clarity was was fantastic you know I talked earlier about working with Microsoft and you know the the job there was to bring clarity to all that complexity and I think that was learned a lot from from people like Alan um, but you know I, I think if you're a strategist in particular and I think probably the same is true for anybody in this industry your job is to stay relevant and fresh right so i I think you should never stop learning those from from other people around you you know you talk about michael scantlebury earlier from impero um you know i'm i have calls almost every day with michael and i learn something new from from him every time you know his his energy and intellect and and perspective on on the industries um you know you, you never stop learning yeah and a great background as well like i don't i don't know if you've you've he's told you about his origin story but just a fascinating history and background really interesting guy yeah indeed great answers to these questions i'm really going to enjoy these now oh, um, right. <laughs> so you're not going to ask me about my favorite color right? <laughs> no, no no i'm going to skip that one that one's easy um next one tell us about some of your favorite books what do you read for personal development professional development what books have influenced the way that you think about your career? Yeah. Favourite books? Well, look, I think, um, I mean, in terms of industry books, there's, there's, there's uh, The Brand Bubble by John Gertzimer is one that I've turned to a lot. Brand Bubble. The Brand Bubble by John Gertzimer okay. is one I've turned to a lot over the years. He, John Gertzimer used to run Brand Asset Valuator back in the day. And... I think what he was looking at is coming out of the last recession in 2008, 2009, there there were brands that were building value and brands that were losing value. And the ones that were losing value tended to use some of the more kind of traditional um, brand models and and creative methodologies. And 
but brands that were i mean he he described it in terms of brand energy mm. um but brands that just did stuff did better and they didn't worry about it too much but they just did stuff and you know i as, as part of our methodology at r&d we spend a lot of time interviewing clients and senior leadership teams and i i i do hear it from you know a, a number of big brand leaders that what they want to do is get work out into the world fast you know creative experimentation you know do good stuff interesting stuff learn from it and move on to the next thing so don't don't be you know obsessed about you know taking 15 months to make a tv commercial just do something get it out and mm. and and learn from it and make yourself you know exciting and energetic and interesting to 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 your consumers and i think i think you know john's book sets out some of those case studies very very well some of those methodologies very well and i think that coming out of covid in particular and and the sort of you know how a lot of brands either can feel stuck or a lot of brands are actually quite um assertive or aggressive at the moment right it's an opportunity to kind of leapfrog um, I think a lot of those methodologies of, you know, energy, I, I think are, are going to be even more relevant. Great, great suggestion. I've not come across it before, the brand Bible. Yeah. Give us give us one more. Yeah. Um, so books are, you know, at a, at a personal level, um, but also with a kind of professional twist to it, right? So I think anything by Kurt Vonnegut, I will read and read what again. What has he done? Um, I, I think he's, he's a wonderful writer. He's uh, an American uh, sort of mid-century writer. Um, his most famous book is Slaughterhouse Five. In fact, you know, behind me there's a bookshelf here, and probably you know, there's there's a load, well, there's a load of Kurt Vonnegut right behind my head. But is it I, science you know, fiction? He, um, some of it is is science fiction, um, but it's it's um, almost like extrapolated reality, and he, awesome. you know, he's he's using it as a way of um, you know, he's he's just great at. Uh, writing about the human condition and human insight and he does it with such clarity of language and thought it's it's wonderful but he does this lovely speech about story arcs mm. and story arcs are, are the physical shape of stories drawn as a as a curve mm. and they're really helpful for when you're writing a presentation or making a pitch in what way so you're looking for well you know he talks about you know um you know uh you've got a you've got a start point for a story sort of horrible things happen to your protagonists you know yeah. there's a moment of jeopardy there's a moment of realization right you know and you leave people on a high you know so he he, he maps out these stories and i think you know a presentation is a story interesting right? you know a pitch is a story yeah and it shouldn't be sort of one level and one tone it should have highs and lows it should leave people kind of wanting a little bit more and sort of you know want to be part of you know Work, working out the the direction it's going themselves, and I've I've often turned to the idea of a story arc. So Google Kurt Vonnegut and story I'm, arcs. I'm on Amazon.com right now. Where it's, it's where a, should I start if I want to start with Kurt Vonnegut? Slaughterhouse Five. Slaughterhouse Five. Okay. And also, I, I quite like Galapagos. Okay. Bought. Right. Which is a story of evolution, but it's, it's rather sweet. Here we go. One click purchase. Done. <laughs> okay, love it. Excellent. Thank you. Good stuff. Great recommendations. <laughs> Amazon Prime or Netflix? What are you watching or streaming that's good? Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the the for for me anyway, the idea of 
channel has sort of somewhat dissipated. Uh, you know, so I'm I, I'm not really a, I wouldn't say I've got any sort of. It's not like you know BBC and ITV used to be back in the day, right? I think they're just all places you can go for stuff. Mm. What I really enjoy at the moment is um, staged. I don't know if you've seen that with David no. Tennant, Michael Sheen. No. Staged again. It's a sort of heightened reality of of them planning to you know put on a put on a play during lockdown. But they it's it's so it's it's done over oh, as kind of Z format. But it makes yeah it makes a kind of wonderful use of the medium and I mean, you know. We've all got Zoom fatigue, but they just do it in a way that sort of seems to make absolute sense of the storytelling. Mm. And, and it's, you know, hilarious. That's a great one. Okay, good stuff. Yeah. Um, what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Mentally and physically fit? Gosh. Um, well, I, I don't want to give your listeners too, too, too many conniptions by imagining me in life. Here, <laughs> but I do, uh, <laughs> I, I, I do like cycling um, when, when I can get out. I, th I think it is good for sort of mental health in the sense of just being able to kind of, you know, concentrate on it and, and not, you know, be in the moment and not have to think too much. But also I, th I just find it great exercise. I like the, I like the wind in my teeth. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> in the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviours or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? Well, that's an exam question, isn't it? Um, I think I've talked about it before a little bit. I mean, I think the... The most important thing for me is is about staying relevant as a strategist, and that means sort of exposing yourself to new and different things and new and different people, um, sort of trying trying new things. As a sort of a little bit of a sort of side project, I um, lecture at a, a business school uh, in Switzerland. I mean, obviously not at the moment, but um, <laughs> in in normal times, in normal times, uh, I, I spend a lot of time in Geneva and. Um, you know that that's been a fantastic way of kind of making me think about what I know and how I communicate and how I get it across to people. Um, you know, and and it feels like almost you know you're, you're impacting the lives of the students, you know, and the people you've got in front of you in the room, and um, that's tremendously energizing. So I think that that as a behaviour, I think you know. Just just exposing yourself to that level of, of of risk and energy, I think, is is tremendously rewarding. Great answer. Okay, last couple of questions, and then I'll I'll let you go. I promise yeah, I'll I'll end sure. I'll end the interview. Um, <laughs> what, what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in the ad agency world or become a creative in an agency? What advice? Well, I should be consistent with my answers, shouldn't I? So if if I said that one of my sort of guiding principles over the years has been to be a source of advantage to to clients. I, th I think it's about being a practitioner, right? I think it's, um, don't try and bluff it. You know, I think there's a lot of people, you know, who who think they can do the job um, and, and you know, might have some innate talent. But I think there's real value in sort of really learning about business and learning your craft and how the agency works and, you know, just really kind of getting deeper into it. You know, it shouldn't just be what you do. It should be you. Your answers are just blowing my mind. It's so thoughtful and considered. Oh, really? It's just, it's oh, amazing. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I could, I, brilliant. Uh, no, I, th I think it's true. I think, you know, I mean, t t Tim and I, you know, like to call ourselves strategic practitioners, which implies, you know, being a an architect and, and a hod carrier at the same at the same time. 
and, and I think you know it's it's I would give that advice to you know if if my kids were coming into the industry you know I would be saying to them look you know just try and be a proper practitioner sort of be you know roll your sleeves up and you know get get stuck in and 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 live it amazing if Kurt Vonnegut has given you this way of influence your way of thinking I think I need to get onto some Kurt Vonnegut because I no. absolutely love it. <laughs> Final question. Yeah, yeah. What is it you know about brand strategy, creative advertising today and the agency world that you wish you knew at the very beginning of your career? Somebody once asked me in relation to a, a large tech brand that I used to work on, um, do you do good deck? And I think and they qualified it by saying, well, why write 20 slides when 200 will do? <laughs> And, you know, it was like almost trying to sort of justify, <laughs> I don't know if it was trying to justify our fees, but cer certainly, you know, it was a sh showing how clever you were by sort of making things look particularly complicated yeah. and sort of grinding out big strategy, I think doesn't do anyone any favours. It certainly doesn't end up with better work at the end of the day uh, so and by I, the way that's a big problem in the in the agency world that clients actually level at agencies they overcomplicate. yeah what is quite a very simple sort of industry at the end of the day yeah find find the simple answer keep it simple draw a picture of it if you have mm. to draw a story arc mm. of it if you have to keep it simple great advice brilliant robin thank you so much for doing this you're welcome it's a pleasure to talk to you and i've really enjoyed it we have been speaking with Robin Jaffray, the founding partner at R&D. If you enjoyed this conversation, then you can listen to over 100 conversations we've done so far with world-class leaders in sales, marketing, ad agency, creative and new business. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Ernie Barber. Email me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Deal Masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Christoph Blaschek is our booker slash project manager. Anita Beckoldi is our head of research. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. Mm -hmm.